Chapter 12 of History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Justin Ordway. History of Astronomy by George Forbes. Chapter 12 The Sun. One of Galileo's most striking discoveries when he pointed his telescope to the heavenly bodies was that of the irregularly shaped spots on the sun, with the dark central umbra and the less dark, but more extensive, penumbra surrounding it, sometimes with several umbrae in one penumbra. He has left us many drawings of these spots, and he fixed their period of rotation as a lunar month. It is not certain whether Galileo, Fabricius, or Schirmer was the first to see the spots. They all did good work. The spots were found to be ever-varying in size and shape. Sometimes, when a spot disappears at the western limb of the sun, it is never seen again. In other cases, after a fortnight, it reappears at the eastern limb. The faculae, or bright areas, which are seen all over the sun's surface, but specially in the neighborhood of spots, and most distinctly near the sun's edge, were discovered by Galileo. A high telescopic power resolves their structure into an appearance like willow leaves, or rice grains, fairly uniform in size and more marked than on other parts of the sun's surface. Speculations as to the cause of sunspots has never ceased from Galileo's time to ours. He supposed them to be clouds. Shiner said they were the indications of tumultuous movements occasionally agitating the ocean of liquid fire of which he supposed the sun to be composed. A. Wilson, of Glasgow, in 1769, noticed a movement of the umbra relative to the penumbra in the transit of the spot over the sun's surface, exactly as if the spot were a hollow, with a black base and gray shelving sides. This was generally accepted, but later investigations have contradicted its universality. Regarding the cause of these hollows, Wilson said, quote, whether their first production and subsequent numberless changes depend upon the eructation of elastic vapors from below, or upon eddies or whirlpools commencing at the surface, or upon the dissolving of the luminous matter in the solar atmosphere, as clouds are melted and again given out by our air, or, if the reader pleases, upon the annihilation and reproduction of parts of this resplendent covering, is left for theory to guess at." End quote. Ever since that date, theory has been guessing at it. The solar astronomer is still applying all the instruments of modern research to find out which of these suppositions, or what modification of any of them, is nearest the truth. The obstacle, one that is perhaps fatal to a real theory, lies in the impossibility of reproducing comparative experiments in our laboratories or in our atmosphere. Sir William Herschel propounded an explanation of Wilson's observation which received much notice, but which, out of respect for his memory, is not now described as it violated the elementary laws of heat. Sir John Herschel noticed that the spots are mostly confined to two zones extending to about 35 degrees on each side of the equator, and that a zone of equatorial calms is free from spots. But it was R.C. Carrington who, by his continuous observations at Red Hill, in Surrey, established the remarkable fact that, while the rotation period in the highest latitudes, 50 degrees, where the spots are seen, is 27 and a half days, 
near the equator the period is only twenty-five days. His splendid volume of observations of the sun led to much new information about the average distribution of spots at different epochs. Schwab of Dessau began in 1826 to study the solar surface and after many years of work arrived at a law of frequency which has been more fruitful of results than any discovery in solar physics. In 1843, he announced the decennial period of maxima and minima of sunspot displays. In 1851, it was generally accepted and, although a period of 11 years has been found to be more exact, all later observations, besides the earlier ones which have been hunted up for the purpose, go to establish a true periodicity in the number of sunspots. But quite lately, Schuster has given reasons for admitting a number of coexistent periods, of which the 11-year period was predominant in the 19th century. In 1851, Lament, a Scotchman at Munich, found a decennial period in the daily range of magnetic declination. In 1852, Sir Edward Sabine announced a similar period in the number of, quote, magnetic storms, end quote, affecting all of the three magnetic elements, declination, dip, and intensity. Australian and Canadian observations both showed the decennial period in all three elements. Wolfe of Zurich and Gauthier of Geneva each independently arrived at the same conclusion. It took many years before this coincidence was accepted as certainly more than an accident by the old-fashioned astronomers, who want rigid proof for every new theory. But the last doubts have been long vanished, and a connection has been further traced between the violent outburst of solar activity and simultaneous magnetic storms. The frequency of the aurora borealis was found by Wolf to follow the same period. In fact, it is closely allied in its cause to terrestrial magnetism. Wolf also collected old observations tracing the periodicity of sunspots back to about 1700 AD. Sporer deduced a law of dependence of the average latitude of sunspots on the phase of the sunspot period. All modern total solar eclipse observations seem to show that the shape of the luminous corona surrounding the moon at the moment of totality has a special distinct character during the time of a sunspot maximum, and another, totally different, during a sunspot minimum. A suspicion is entertained that the total quantity of heat received by the Earth from the sun is subject to the same period. This would have far-reaching effects on storms, harvests, vintages, floods, and droughts, but it is not safe to draw conclusions of this kind except from a very long period of observations. Solar photography has deprived astronomers of the type of Carrington of the delight in devoting a life's work to collecting data. It has now become part of the routine work of an observatory. In 1845, Foucault and Fizeau took a daguerreotype photograph of the sun. In 1850, Bond produced one of the moon of great beauty, Draper having made some attempts at an even earlier date. But astronomical photography really owes its beginning to Delarue, who used the collodion process for the moon in 1853 and constructed the coup photoheliograph in 1857, from which date these instruments have been multiplied and have given us an accurate record of the sun's surface. Gelatine dry plates were first used by Huggins in 1876. It is noteworthy that from the outset, Delarue recognized the value of stereoscopic vision, 
which is now known to be of supreme accuracy. In 1853, he combined pairs of photographs of the moon in the same phase, but under different conditions regarding libration, showing the moon from slightly different points of view. These in the stereoscope exhibited all the relief resulting from binocular vision, and looked like a solid globe. In 1860, he used successive photographs of the total solar eclipse stereoscopically to prove that the red prominences belonged to the sun and not to the moon. In 1861, he similarly combined two photographs of a sunspot, the perspective effect showing the umbra like a floor at the bottom of a hollow penumbra, and in one case the faculae were discovered to be sailing over a spot apparently at some considerable height. These appearances may be partly due to a proper motion, but so far as it went, this was a beautiful confirmation of Wilson's discovery. Hewlett, however, in 1894, after 30 years of work, showed that the spots are not always depressions, being very subject to disturbance. The Ku photographs contributed a vast amount of information about sunspots, and they showed that the faculae generally follow the spots in their rotation around the sun. The constitution of the sun's photosphere, the layer which is the principal light source of the sun, has always been a subject of great interest, and much was done by men with exceptionally keen eyesight, like Mr. Dawes. But it was a difficult subject, owing to the rapidity of the changes in appearance of the so-called rice grains, about one inch in diameter. The rapid transformations and circulations of these rice grains, if thoroughly studied, might lead to a much better knowledge of solar physics. This seemed almost hopeless, as it was found impossible to identify any rice grain in the turmoil after a few minutes. But M. Hansky of Bulkoa, whose recent death is deplored, introduced successfully a scheme of photography, which might also be called a solar cinematograph. He took photographs of the sun at intervals of 15 or 30 seconds, and then enlarged selected portions of these 200 times giving a picture corresponding to a solar disk of 6 meters diameter. In these enlarged pictures he was able to trace the movements and changes of shape and brightness of individual rice grains. Some granules become larger or smaller. Some seem to rise out of a mist, as it were, and to become clearer. Others grow feebler. Some are split in two. Some are rotated through a right angle in a minute or less although each of the grains may be the size of Great Britain. Generally, they move together in groups of very various velocities, up to 40 kilometers a second. These movements seem to have definite relation to any sunspots in the neighborhood. From the results already obtained, it seems certain that, if this method of observation be continued, it cannot fail to supply facts of the greatest importance. It is quite impossible to do justice here, to the work of all those who are engaged on astronomical physics. The utmost that can be attempted is to give a fair idea of the directions of human thought and endeavor. During the last half century, America has made splendid progress, and an entirely new process of studying the photosphere has been independently perfected by Professor Hale at Chicago and Delandre at Paris. They have succeeded in photographing the sun's surface in monochromatic light, such as the light given off as one of the bright lines of hydrogen or of calcium by means of the spectroheliograph. The spectroscope is placed with its slit in the focus of an equatorial telescope, 
pointed to the sun so that the circular image of the sun falls on the slit. At the other end of the spectroscope is the photographic plate. Just in front of this plate, there is another slit parallel to the first, in the position where the image of the first slit formed by the K-line of calcium falls. Thus is obtained a photograph of the section of the sun, made by the first slit, only in K-light. As the image of the sun passes over the first slit, the photographic plate is moved at the same rate and in the same direction behind the second slit, and as successive sections of the sun's image in the equatorial enter the apparatus, so are these sections successively thrown in their proper place on the photographic plate, always in K-light. By using a high dispersion, the faculae which give off K-light can be correctly photographed, not only at the sun's edge, but all over his surface. The actual mechanical method of carrying out the observation is not quite so simple as what is here described. By choosing another line of the spectrum, instead of calcium K, for example the hydrogen line H subscript 3, we obtain two photographs, one showing the appearance of the calcium flocculi and the other of the hydrogen flocculi, on the same part of the solar surface. And nothing is more astonishing than to note the total want of resemblance in the form shown on the two. This mode of research promises to afford many new and useful data. The spectroscope has revealed the fact that, broadly speaking, the Sun is composed of the same materials as the Earth. Angstrom was the first to map out all of the lines to be found in the solar spectrum, but Rowland of Baltimore, after having perfected the art of making true gratings with equidistant lines ruled on metal for producing spectra, then proceeded to make a map of the solar spectrum on a large scale. In 1866, Lockyer threw an image of the sun upon the slit of a spectroscope, and was thus enabled to compare the spectrum of a spot with that of the general solar surface. The observation proved the darkness of a spot to be caused by increased absorption of light, not only in the dark lines, which are widened, but over the entire spectrum. In 1883, Young resolved this continuous obscurity into an infinite number of fine lines, which have all been traced in a shadowy way onto the general solar surface. Lockyer also detected displacements of the spectrum lines in the spots, such as would be produced by a rapid motion in the line of sight. It has been found that both uprushes and downrushes occur, but there is no marked predominance of either in a sunspot. The velocity of motion thus indicated in the line of sight sometimes appears to amount to 320 miles a second, but it must be remembered that pressure of a gas has some effect in displacing the spectral lines. So we must go on, collecting data, until a time comes when the meaning of all the facts can be made clear. Total Solar Eclipses During total solar eclipses, the time is so short and the circumstances so impressive that drawings of the appearance could not always be trusted. The red prominences of jagged form that are seen round the moon's edge and the corona with its streamers radiating or interlacing have much detail that can hardly be recorded in a sketch. By the aid of photography, a number of records can be taken during the progress of totality. From a study of these, the extent of the corona is demonstrated in one case to extend to at least six diameters of the moon, though the eye has traced it farther. This corona is still one of the wonders of astronomy and leads to many questions. What is its consistency if it extends many million miles from the sun's surface? 
How is it that it opposed no resistance to the motion of comets which have almost grazed the sun's surface? Is this the origin of the zodiacal light? The character of the corona in photographic records has been shown to depend upon the phase of the sunspot period. During the sunspot maximum, the corona seems most developed over the spot zones, i.e., neither at the equator nor the poles. The four great sheaves of light give it a square appearance, and are made up of rays or plumes, delicate like the petals of a flower. During a minimum, the nebulous ring seems to be made of tufts of fine hairs with aigrettes or radiations from both poles and streamers from the equator. On September 19, 1868, eclipse spectroscopy began with the Indian eclipse, in which all observers found that the red prominences showed a bright line spectrum, indicating the presence of hydrogen and other gases. So bright was it that Janssen exclaimed, quote, Je vais en d'éclipse. And the next day he observed the lines at the edge of the uneclipsed sun. Huggins had suggested this observation in February 1868, his idea being to use prisms of such great dispersive power that the continuous spectrum reflected by our atmosphere should be greatly weakened, while a bright line would suffer no diminution by the high dispersion. On October 20th, Lockyer, having news of the eclipse, but not of Janssen's observations the day after, was able to see these lines. This was a splendid performance, for it enabled the prominences to be observed, not only during eclipses, but every day. Moreover, the next year Huggins was able, by using a wide slit, to see the whole of a prominence and note its shape. Prominences are classified, according to their form, into flame and cloud prominences. The spectrum of the latter showing calcium, hydrogen, and helium, that of the former including a number of metals. The D line of sodium is a double line, and in the same eclipse, 1868, an orange line was noticed, which was afterwards found to lie close to the two components of the D line. It did not correspond with any known terrestrial element, and the unknown element was called helium. It was not until 1895 that Sir William Ramsey found this element as a gas in the mineral clevite. The spectrum of the corona is partly continuous, indicating light reflected from the sun's body, but it also shows a green line corresponding with no known terrestrial element, and the name coronium has been given to the substance causing it. A vast number of facts have been added to our knowledge about the sun by photography and the spectroscope. Speculations and hypotheses in plenty have been offered, but it may be long before we have a complete theory evolved to explain all the phenomena of the storm-swept metallic atmosphere of the sun. The proceedings of scientific societies teem with such facts and working hypotheses, and the best of them have been collected by Miss Clerk in her History of Astronomy during the 19th century. As to established facts, we learn from the spectroscopic researches that the continuous spectrum is derived from the photosphere, or solar gaseous material compressed almost to liquid consistency, that the reversing layer surrounds it and gives rise to black lines in the spectrum, that the chromosphere surrounds this, is compressed mainly of hydrogen, and is the cause of the red prominences in eclipses, and that the gaseous corona surrounds all of these and extends to vast distances outside the sun's visible surface. End of chapter 12. The Sun
Recording by Justin Ordway.